0: by Penny. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner. Gets up. center! <laughs> Perry! Goal! Oh, Corey Perry! Oh, you able to take away from Kalani. Get away to Kalani around the
1: All right, we're back with a little bit of deja vu, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the Ducks fall late to the Vegas Golden Knights, two to one in overtime. In, I, you know, I was gonna say probably the kind of worst way you could fall after you know leading with a minute to go. It's probably not the worst way because I'm remembering back to come back on Cattell and I feel like if you're an Oilers fan, that's probably worse than this. <laughs> but <laughs> this was a tough one. Uh, no Gibson fought the ducks almost to uh, you know full two points in this game but wild bill ties the game with a, just over a minute remaining and then probably the worst 3 on 3 overtime start and finish that I've ever seen by this team and we joke that the ducks are bad at overtime We've pretty much been saying that for the last couple seasons here, but this takes the cake as the worst three-on-three overtime, not even just in, in Ducks history, probably in, in since the three-on-three format has begun. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a goal that quick where the faceoff gets one, Stone and Pacioretty break the other way, and the puck's in the back of the net within, what, five seconds?
2: Yeah, well, the other thing is, it almost looked like a drill. It was such a clean two-on-one that it, it it just looked almost looked like a drill. Like they were just running it just to get better. So, I, you know, it's, I don't know. I'm just going to assume that the Ducks knew uh, <laughs> that everybody needed sleep. And so they just <laughs> had to wrap that game up as quick as possible.
1: I, I like I I get the momentum shifts at that point. Uh you know, Vegas was kind of getting back into the game. The Ducks had done a pretty good job of of kind of closing down the chances that obviously the the start to this game wasn't great and Vegas was all over Anaheim just like they were in game 1 uh, a couple days ago. But I think that, you know, after to come to our goal, the Ducks kind of got back into it a little bit and kind of held off Vegas for most of the game until that late goal where they broke through and you just kind of felt the momentum shift. And, you know, did I think that Vegas was going to score that early in overtime? No. Uh, but you kind of felt like they were due for another one, um, you know, the way they were playing, the way they were pressuring the Ducks at that point. And, you know, it, it's a tough one. You know, the Ducks get a point out of it, which I guess is some, some solace at the end of the day. But you really felt like they could have grinded this one out. For, for John Gibson... You know, let alone if, if anybody in this game, the way he played, I think he was the number one star for the Ducks. You know, made a plenty of key saves in this game. Um, you know, we're not expecting much from this season, but you would still like to see them close out this game and get two points and, and kind of reward John Gibson with the shutout.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's kind of, you know, what you see is one of two ways, hopefully, that the games go this season. Um, you know, you see, John Gibson played really well tonight. He just looked really good. Um, and the team did enough around him to keep it. You know, I, I don't know, competitive. I don't want to say competitive, but the scoreline was competitive. Yeah. Um, you know, they kept themselves in it to their credit, and that's kind of what mattered. And then. You know, look, it goes to, you know, goes to overtime and three-on-three, three, like, that's just a skills competition. I don't want to say it like it's a... Skill is almost always going to win out in a situation where you're on three-on-three on three overtime, and I don't think the Ducks really have anybody that would crack the top two or three lines that uh, Vegas can put together. Well,
1: who, who did the or Ducks roll out there? It was Sam Steele and who were the Steel, other? Steele, Raquel, yeah, and you look at the other side and you've got Patri, Mark Stone, and what Shade Theodore
0: was <laughs> yeah.
1: the trio yeah, that uh, yeah, Vegas sure. started the game with and you know, the ducks the ducks any of the ducks top three that you could roll out there would be improved by adding any one of those guys to it. And you look at maybe even um Vegas' second unit when you put, you know, Marsha Show or Carlson out there with Petrangelo, that's probably their second unit. And mm-hmm. that itself could likely be better than any unit the Ducks could ice, so when you have when you have to go against two those two kind of three-man units that Vegas could have put out there, uh, it was always going to be a tough go for the Ducks to kind of get things done in overtime. Uh, let, we'll go through the game here and, and kind of break down some of the key moments. There was uh, a few things pre-game to get to. Uh, same lineup as opening night, which was a bit surprising because we heard that Andy Walensky got activated off the taxi squad. Cody Curran was sent back onto the taxi squad. Uh, We figured that Sonny Milano could check into this game in place of Isaac Lindstrom. You know, Lindstrom didn't look great in Game 1, only played, I think, 11 minutes, so we kind of just felt like Milano could be the guy to check in. But nope, they they go with the same lineup, and, you know, I was a bit surprised by that. I I thought there would be a little bit of a mix-up. Not that the Ducks played an awful game in Game 1, despite losing 5-2, but you kind of felt like some changes
2: were inbound, especially with the taxi squad moves yeah I you know I think you know the big one for me was seeing Lundstrom was still in there he didn't look good last game he didn't look great this game he looked a little bit better a little bit more comfortable I think um you know the one take one of the takeaways for me from this game is you can at least see where you can see what the coaching staff sees in Lundstrom putting him on that line with those two I think uh You know, Heinen has shown a little bit more offensive pop than I would have given him credit for. Um, And Lundstrom was just kind of trying to run around, and he just wasn't able to create space for himself. Uh, You know, he's still kind of learning the game. He looked tonight the way Sam Steele has looked for the last couple, you know, the last year and a half or whatever, you know, where you can see that he can do what he needs to do and get where he needs to get. He just doesn't have the comfort or the experience yet to kind of really know the way and the feel of the game. So the the one thing
1: for me and we have to mention this before we get into it into the breakdown of the game, those Vegas jerseys. My god I, You know, when they first came out and when you don't see it as a setup and you kind of see it as like a, you know a dolled up store image that they want to present, they don't look that bad. But oh man, on the ice. They go from a, a gold to a, a mustard type color paired up with the same color gloves and the uh, the black shorts. God man, those those did not turn out the way I thought they would. Yeah, no, those are those are awful. Um Need a you know. uh, Vegas gold jersey and Wild Wing jersey showdown at some point
2: <laughs> this year. Look, look, we can't do this. It's too early in the show to have an argument about why the Wild Wing jersey is the best. I like the Wild jersey. Wing jersey. I, I
1: like it. I'm the only one. I, I'm only one, Now you. But we're the only ones on the show who like this. Pat and Jay don't like the Wild Wing jersey. I think Keith, Keith has to be the decision maker here on whether he likes the Wild Wing jersey or not. There's a lot of our listeners who don't like it, and there's a lot of Ducks fans who do like the jersey. We, we, we we've had this debate a million times. I think the one thing everybody can agree on is basically everybody does not do not like those Vegas Golden Knights jerseys, especially in, in the whole
2: setup. Awful, just awful. Yeah, no, the whole thing looks bad. And, you know, the, I'm not even a big fan of the gloves. Like, I like white gloves, but I, I don't like that they're kind of patchwork. Like, they're not even completely white. Which I think would make them it would make them a little bit better for me, but the gold is just so much, and you know it feels kind of dumb because it's one of those things where you're always like, oh yeah, we wish that they would be a little bit more interesting or whatever, but then you're just like, this just it's not so much interesting, it's just
1: ugly. They might not even be Vegas's worst jerseys either. Their reverse retros are red, <laughs> like they're yeah. like very very bright red. I oh because they've got the sugar patch as the main logo on those, yeah. right? Yeah, the crossed swords, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah they, I'm, I will not. T- hopefully they don't wear those against us because this was painful enough. Um, a <laughs> couple, couple other pregame notes we had to get to. We speculated last podcast about Ben Hutton because there was kind of conflicting rumors whether he still was on a PTO, or whether he was going to sign or not. It wasn't really anything concrete, just a weird tweet from Elite Prospects that said he got demoted from the... Anaheim Lady Ducks under 16 team to unknown and then a couple other sources saying that they heard that he was released from his PTO which ended up not being true he ends up signing a 950k one-year contract you would have to think I mean Larson didn't have a bad game here but you would have to think at some point Ben Hutton likely checks into this lineup um and Cody Curran's waiver exempt so he can easily get placed on and off of the uh the taxi squad and same with Andy Walensky. So I would think with Ben Hutton coming in here, maybe not next game, but at some point once he gets kind of caught up to speed here that he's going to check into the lineup, whether it's, you know, on his offside playing beside Jakob Larsson or maybe playing with Hock and Parr, Walensky, you know, I, I think we're, we're pretty close to seeing Ben Hutton get his first game in a Ducks uniform.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the thing that's really interesting to me is – when you look at the third pair right now, which is Larson and Hawkenfog, it may not be true, you know, but what you see is a defenseman who can skate the puck and a defenseman who is going to stand still and be big. And, you know, I think, uh, I wonder if when Ben Hutton makes his appearance, his first appearance, if Cody Curran makes the same appearance too, because... You know, the one thing we know about Cody Curran is he actually prefers to play the right side, which is his offside. And Ben Hutton's a lefty, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, the idea of those two playing together and you still having that kind of, you know, skill and grit dynamic on your third pair, like, I I think it could be intriguing. Um, You know, I'm not expecting too much out of any of the bottom four defensemen as far as the guys that are going to bounce up and down and be on that third pair. But Curran is someone I'm definitely interested to see. So
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not I don't think anybody's expecting too much from Ben Hyden or from that that bottom pairing defense. They look better this game. I'll give them that credit and obviously Larson picked up the primary assist on the our goal, which was a pretty good effort from him. I don't think at any point in the season are we ever gonna be wowed by that bottom pairing. I, I think like you said, there is some I don't know if upside is the right word, but you know, there's a mystery about Cody Curran and, and what he could provide to this lineup because we haven't seen him, and there's no NHL experience to kind of fall back on and say this is the type of player he is. Right? You can maybe dig up some some SHL footage from when he was in Sweden and and kind of go and and, and kind of stake your claim on that, but. There is an air of mystery around him on what he could provide, so I am kind of interested in seeing him. And obviously, we talked about Josh Mahara on the last podcast too, and, and potentially mm-hmm. seeing what he can. So there are some interesting options. But when you speak of Larson and Hackenpaw and, and Wilenski and Ben Hutton, you kind of kind of know what you're going to expect from those guys. You know, we we have a lot of experience watching Wilinski, Hackenpaw, and, and Jakob Larson for the last couple seasons, and you know we've we've seen what uh, Ben Hutton can do at the NHL level, whether it be with the Canucks or with the Kings last year. So, you know, at at some point I'm sure we'll see Curran, whether it's sooner rather than later. That all depends on on, kind of how the Ducks want to work him into the lineup. And I think the same goes for Josh Mahura. Um, Let's quickly get through the first period here. Not too much really going on in this one. I I guess a complete contrast from the last game where there was four (laughs) goals scored in the first period. Um, Vegas trying to get on the board early. A relentless pressure uh, through the first, I guess, 10, 15 minutes of this game. Uh, but John Gibson make, made a, a plenty of good saves in this one. Some bad turnovers led to some uh, high-quality chances for Vegas. Uh, a penalty for Nosek for Slash and gave the Ducks their first power play, and, and Sam Steele got the, the Ducks' best chance of the game early on where he snuck in behind and flurry, did an old-school diving poke check, to deny Steele from getting it to the back end and putting it in the back of the net but really this period was 90% Vegas you know, all the pressure finished 15-6 to in the shots and John Gibson keeping the ducks in it early which I guess you can expect from him right like we said he's hopefully going to have a bounce back year this year and I think these are the types of games we're going to see from John Gibson where there's going to be a lot of turnovers there's going to be a lot of chances there's going to be a lot of high danger chances and John Gibson is going to have to stand on his head
2: Yeah, no, that's, you know, we have talked about it before. Like, if the Ducks want to even be competitive on a nightly basis, John Gibson is going to have to be the best player on the team for 40 games, 50 games. Um, Do I think he can do that? Absolutely. Do I also think that we have seen, you know, this is, I don't want to say it. I think there is a degree to which we can look at what happened last year. And to me, it feels like an emotional burnout. Like he just, there was just too much of him having to be the, basically the only guy on the ice. And so I think, you know, if the team can kind of hold on for dear life and John Gibson can stand on his head for 50 minutes, you know, you only need a couple minutes of something crazy going, happen, uh, of something crazy happening and... You know, now you're looking at a very different game as far as the scoreline is concerned. That's what we saw tonight. You know, I don't think anybody watched that game and thought the Ducks, you know, did anything really to control the tempo of that game. They kind of wrote it out a little bit better than they did the night before, or last game, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to come down to uh, how good John Gibson can be, and then that kind of gets us into the first penalty kill or power play, which was garbage, and that's the other factor, right, is what can they do at special teams. So And even at five-on-five, five, I mean, the
1: Ducks didn't generate a ton of high-quality scoring chances in this game. Like like we said, the Sam Steele chance on the power play was really the only high-quality chance that they had in the first period. Um, you know, you move into the second, and there's a bit of a lineup change. Raquel was skating with Getzlaff and Heinen for a bit, which I think when you look at it on paper, it makes a little bit more sense. When we talked about yesterday, that line lacking mm-hmm. really any finish or any flair with Getzlaff, Lindstrom, and Heinen. Um, and, you know, they paid dividends or got close to paying dividends pretty early when Raquel drove to the net, drew a penalty, and then the rebound comes up to Denton Heinen, and Fleury makes an even better save to keep the game scoreless. Um penalty to Vegas, the Ducks get a power play, and of course, as has been traditional for the Ducks over the last couple seasons, the power play didn't generate any chances, it was actually a detriment to the Ducks, because the Golden Knights got (laughs) 2 shorthanded breakaways, one from Waugh, who snuck in behind, and Gibson made a great save, Uh, Waugh faked to go to the backhand and and shot forehand, and Gibson got a piece of it, and then Riley Smith breaks in on another breakaway, and Gibson has to deny him too that you know, it's not enough that the ducks can't generate any offense on their power play yeah they allow two high quality scoring chances two breakaways um you know luckily it wasn't a guy like marsha show or Mark stone or Max Pacioretty on the end of these it was nicholas Waugh and and uh, Riley
2: Smith yeah I you know I um I have been beating this drum for a long time like my thing is it's just the power play is so bad and there are are very few times that I see anything that makes me think they're doing anything to make it better. Um, You know, it just, I will say the one thing I noticed tonight is there seemed to be a far less, if really almost no, of those stupid cross the red line drop passes, which don't actually do anything. I think they just look cool. Um, You know, so it's hard. It's hard to think there's much improvement there. Like you said, they they were almost worse for them because they're running around, they're playing right in Vegas's hands, and then Vegas creates a couple opportunities, and they're not able to capitalize on them. But you know, every shot at the other end <laughs> that you're taking on a penalty kill is better than taking you know than having them have the puck in the other end. So, um, you know, I think we saw tonight what most of us would expect our worst kind of fears to be as far as the quality of play and the chances given up. And the only difference is we didn't give up two quick ones like we did the game before, and so the game just feels a little bit different tonally because of where the scoreline is at.
1: Fans are never going to dictate what the Ducks front office does in terms of player movement, but if the Ducks continue like this on offense... Uh, you know, We've already got people screaming for Trevor Zegers to be playing now. But you know, Maxim Comtois was 100% of the Ducks' goals. They have three goals in their first two games. Their power plays have looked awful. Um, you almost feel like this team is screaming out for a, a player like Trevor Zegers. At some point, the pressure to just get him in the lineup is going to be... Ridiculous. Like, I, I, I would say it almost already is, but we're only two games into the season. You know, you look at the teams coming up. You're playing Minnesota, who rattled off two comeback wins against the Kings in their first two games. You've got Colorado. You've got St. Louis coming up. Like, the schedule doesn't get any easier from here, and you've got to face these teams later on in the season as well. It, I don't know where the offense is going to come from at this point. You know, obviously, right now, it's only come from. Maxim Comtois, and we, we see on the goal, uh, it was a three-on-one with Larson Hackenpah and Comtois. Not something I don't think you'll ever see again, where you have the third pairing of the Ducks <laughs> defense helping Comtois give the Ducks a one nothing lead on a three-on-one. I don't know how Vegas got caught, and I think they got caught on a change, but yeah, I, I mean, this is what you get, I guess, with the Ducks this season, is, is this, you know, the type of offense you generate, the ones that you kind of don't expect.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think, again, what you see is Max Comtois making the game simple. You know, he drives hard from wide, he takes a, a good angle to that far post, and, you know, the defense backs up enough that Larson is able to make a pass across, and he puts it in, and that's why you play that type of game. The problem is, like, with that is that you said, like, if it was anybody but Larson, it might feel a little bit more sustainable, but... I don't think any of us, like you said, are expecting Larson to, you know, turn into the second coming of Scott Niedermeyer. So, you know, I'm not counting on him jumping into the rush too much. Uh, So, I don't know, man. I just, there's a point at which you're just kind of watching it all happen. You go, yeah, this feels about what we were expecting. And, you know, Sam Steele had some flashes tonight of really making nice passes. Uh, he looked good. He looked. He looks like he, th- there's been improvement there. Like
1: He looks yeah, like he's, he's got a little bit quicker of a first step. He's thinking the game. I, I think he's slowing the, down the game a little bit more than he did. He was rushing plays a lot last year. And the creativity yeah. is back. And that's something I felt like. You know, going from junior to the NHL, that Sam Steele lost, and a lot of players lose that. It's it's hard to kind of transition from that level into the NHL and and keep that create creativity and and that skill level. You're playing against much harder opponents, but it, it feels like Sam Steele's starting to work that. Back into this game. And obviously, it's a small sample size, but I think when you look at these two games, there's no question which line has been the Ducks' uh, best line. Not just that Maxim Comtois has three goals, but Sam Steele's looked good, and, and I don't think Troy Terry has looked bad. Now, I think he's probably been the less noticeable player out of the three when it comes down to Comtois and Sam Steele, but I think that's clearly been the Ducks' best line, and, and a lot of that has to do with the development that Sam Steele has had from last season going into this year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I said this on Twitter tonight and uh it's hard for me to know if he got faster physically or if the game has just slowed down that much for him over the summer or not even so. Yeah, over the summer because we didn't yeah. Anyways, um you know, because he, he really does look like he's seeing the whole ice, and he's able to make those plays. Uh, you know, that when I was reading up on him about, that's one of the things they say is that he sees the seams. He can make those, those passes. He doesn't have elite creativity or elite playmaking skills, but he's got enough there that in a second or third line role, he can be able to contribute, and you put him with Terry, who has some offensive upside. And I think, you know, what you're looking at there is a little bit of a force multiplier idea. You know, they're all young. They're all making sure that somebody is riding somebody's ass on that forecheck. And so, you know, I think what you're seeing is just three kids who are really hungry, want to stick in the NHL, and they're working for it. And I think if you kind of compare that to the Henrique line, where you've got three guys – who should be playing much better than they have been. um, You know, it's hard not to think that more than anything it's emotional that is allowing that steel line to be uh, whatever proximity of successful they have been so far.
1: Yeah, it's almost a carbon copy of what the Ducks tried to get out of a kid line last year. It was Jones, Steele, and Terry for a little bit that we saw last year. And and the one thing that that line lacked was a finisher. And, you know, I give Max Jones some credit because there were some attempts there, and he was pretty unlucky in in that first kind of reincarnation of that line when they were put together. But you look at the difference that Maxine Comtois makes being on that line. Um, You know, we put it pretty well on the last podcast that he just does things right. Like, he, he just... He's just, a, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't know how to put this, he's not. He's a simple player in the sense that he just kind of does the right things. He's not very flashy, drives to the net hard, he's always in the right position. Like, he makes that line tick, and then you've got a guy like Sam Steele has got the creativity and the playmaking ability to get the puck to him. And then you add in Troy Terry there, who is, you know, probably the best two-way player on that line, has some speed to himself, and, you know, pretty good playmaking ability that, you know, if you give him the puck, you, you know he can find you if you're in an open spot. It bodes well for the future for the Ducks that if this line can get going, that they'll have some chemistry there. Because we know at some point the Raquel, Henrik, and Silverberg line is going to get things going. You know, they've consistently been a streaky line. The three of them, they can get hot and they can do well for you know a five to ten game stretch, and then they can disappear for a little bit. The problem with the Ducks this year. and and over the last couple of years is they don't have any other lines that can really get going to kind of mitigate that inconsistency. When Raquel Silverberg and Henrique aren't going, who's going to pick up the slack? You know, right now it seems like it's come to us, Steele and Terry, but that gets offline has nothing going for it at this point in time. And you're not supposed to rely on a line of Delorier, Grant and Rowney to give you consistent offense. You know, they've looked how we thought they would look, you know, a decent fourth line for the Ducks. And, yeah, they had a couple good scoring chances in this, in this game. Deloria probably could have got a couple go- a couple goals if, you know, Mark Renderflorio made a couple good saves there. But outside of, you know, Steele come to Ontario right now, if that Henrique line isn't firing, the Ducks have nothing.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, the – when you're looking at a roster and you're looking – you know, at kind of player profiles. You know, it's it's definitely changed over the last few years where now it's a bit of a top nine as opposed to a top six as far as where you want your skill guys to be. Um, You know, I've said before, I think the modern fourth line is kind of what people thought the third line was 10 years ago. Um, But the problem with the Ducks is they don't have anybody right now at a high impact level. And so, like you said, when a line like that Raquel, Rico, uh, Silverberg line, which is a perfectly good middle six line. That's exactly what they should be. Um, you know, they can go out. They can eat up minutes when they're on. They can play hard matchups. You know what I mean? I think uh, they're all very responsible. They can all, you know, uh, you know, they all played 200 per game. Like, I don't know that Raquel is, you know, an elite defensive player or anything like that but he's not bad. He's not a detriment when he's on the ice. And so having those three guys when they're rolling is great. The problem is, is like you said, when they're not, there's nobody else to take that pressure off of them and help them kind of have a little bit of breathing room to find their game. And so, you know, that's why somebody like Zegris is so exciting because skill-wise, you see him and you're like, that's a top-line player skill-wise. Whether or not it translates, we are not sure, right? We're, that's it. We're going to have to wait and see. But that skill set is easily projectable to a top-line player. And once you have that, you start to see the rest of the roster kind of fall into the roles that they should be in, and it allows everyone to play better.
1: The the pressure on this guy is, is the one thing that worries me, and not so much that I think he can't handle it because – he's shown that he can handle high-pressure situations. I mean, he led that Team USA team to gold at the World Junior Championship. You know, he was dynamic, and he is a leader, and and he is a player that thrives under pressure and and has, you know, an insane level of confidence. But him coming into this Ducks lineup right now, you know, people are expecting him to be the guy. And I don't think the Ducks have enough pieces for him to come in and really make that difference, even if the skill level translates. like We're talking about Steele, Comtois, and Terry being the only good line the Ducks have right now, the only line that's firing, and maybe the Raquel Silverberg and Henrik line gets going, but you know, who do you put Zekers with right now? Do you put him with Getzlaff and Milano or Getzlaff and Heinen and, and expect him to, to make that line that much better? Maybe. You know, I I worry about the pressure that the team would put on him bringing him up this early. And, of course, I'd love to see him. I think this season needs some excitement, and we all want to see him play. But it's hard to think, like, where does he slot in right now and make this team significantly better without, you know, being a detriment to his development and, and putting that much pressure on a guy to make this team better when, you know, realistically with him or without him, they're, they're not going to be a playoff team this year.
2: Right. I think, you know, I think you said it perfectly, is you look at the team that there is and you look at even some of the players that maybe you can talk yourself into pulling up and there's not, you know, maybe with the exception of some of the kids that were literally just drafted, um, there's not a lot of uh, infrastructure there to allow someone like Zegers who's a playmaker to be able to succeed. And so I think for me what that is is that is the most um obvious indictment of this kind of half in half out thing that Bob Murray has been doing with this roster because you know we like we all like Henrik, we all like Sofaberg. These are good guys, but if you move those guys out and now you're taking middle uh first round, you know, late first round picks like if they move uh, you know Raquel two years ago, maybe they're taking Peyton Krebs. and if they take you know if they move Manson, maybe they're getting uh, what is it Uh Lapierre Hendrick yeah. Lapierre was that kid who went a little late cause of the concessions? Yeah. You know what I mean? like these kind of opportunities that they're passing up in the name of, well, we need good players for when the next great players get here. Yeah, but you don't have enough potentially great players to for sure say they're going to hit. That's why, you know, you look at the Kings and they have Turcotte and they have Kaliev and now they have Byfield and they've got Fagamo. Like, they've got players that even if one or two or three doesn't hit, there's enough other players around them that their prospects are looking good. And that, I think, to me, is the biggest indictment. And exactly like you said, it puts so much undue pressure on Zegris who is, you know, such a readily identifiable talent. You can, I mean, to the intent when, to the extent that, like, he was 10 years old and someone was on a BlackBerry, like, yo, this kid's (laughs) fucking dope, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's just so easy to see him being an impact NHL player that it makes you wonder who who is going to be helping him do that. And it's hard to see anybody, you know, Perot's got a good shot. Sam Colangelo's got a a good shot at being a, you know, a mid-level goal scorer and having a little bit of a big body and and a strong shot. And that's all great. But, like, you know, you give yourself one or two more of these guys and you're in a better position. Right now, I think it kind of does feel like if Zegerson drives down, aren't who we think they are, we're back at square one, and the team's already getting older and older, and John Gibson is getting older, and, you know, the trickle-down is just so significant from the, you know, like I said, half-in, half-out thing that Bob Murray has been doing, and his inability or unwillingness to make some hard decisions, move on from a couple of players who are good players, they're good for culture, they're good for on-ice performance, all that kind of stuff. But he is almost trying to bring prospects into the team from four years ago instead of bringing in prospects to help with the team in four years and to work with the other prospects he already has.
1: Look at some of the teams who have kind of gone the same route as the Ducks, and one of them that comes to mind, you know, the, like you said, the half in, half out, is the Vancouver Canucks where they have gone with that half-in, half-in, half-out in, half in, half approach where, you know, yes, they've got Besser and, and Pedersen and Horvat with some high picks, but then they've made some questionable moves and bringing in, you know, Jay Beagle and Louis Erickson and Antoine Roussel and Tyler Myers at, you know, ridiculous contracts, and now they went out and got Braden Holpe when they already had Jack and Markstrom, and it's, you know, this approach that, you know, you could have just got you know piled up the prospects and committed to the rebuild you know 5 6 years ago and you would have been fine and you would have been in a better position and you know look at those teams that publicly committed to a rebuild and we we look at you know some of the top up and coming teams right now Carolina New York LA you, you know these are the teams that did that they committed to a rebuild they brought in the prospects when they needed to they added it to kind of the young core they already had and those are some of the top-up-and-coming teams. Ottawa. You know, Ottawa did that as well. We all laughed at Ottawa. And yes, they got lucky with how bad San Jose was that they ended up getting two top-five picks, but Ottawa committed to the rebuild. You know, Tim Stussler got his first NHL goal tonight. They've got a young, a lot of young players in there, Drake Bathurst and Josh Norris, who are making their way in. Obviously, Thomas Chabot is, is a great player. They have Eric Brandstrom there. You know, they had to bring in a, in a goaltender, so they brought in Matt Murray, so they're starting to kind of bring in those older pieces to to kind of help the, the young guys along. Those are the teams that did it the right way. And, and like you said, you look at the Ducks being that, that half-in, half-out approach. Like you know We all think Zegers and Dryasdale are going to pay it out. They probably will. But like you said, what if they don't? And, and what do you have yeah. after that? And, and even this year, like what do you have to bring into the lineup that can make a difference offensively? You know, we're looking at Sonny Milano to make a difference. Now, that's not the guy you want to be trying to bring into the lineup to make a difference. Is a guy who hasn't been able to make the lineup for the first two games of the season. Like He's your 13th forward at this point, And, you know, you're hoping that he can come in and, and contribute some goals here and there, but he's not going to come in and be a 25 goal scorer. You know, do I think Milano in the lineup right now makes sense? And do I think, you know, he can contribute offensively? I do. But outside of him, like, who are you dipping down in, in San Diego to grab right now? You know, for me the best goal scorer down there is Jacob Perreault but it's likely in my opinion too early to to give him that chance I don't think he's ready for the NHL I think he definitely needed another season uh, with Sarnia in the OHL and and see how things go there and and he likely would have spent uh, you know he'll spend another season there a couple seasons down in the OHL you know if you're the Ducks right now with you know struggling for offense maybe you give him you know a four or five game stint or at least a couple games just to test it out and see what you can get from him because you know there aren't many options that you can go to and you know obviously max jones is another guy who yeah he's on the ir right now but a guy that you could bring into the lineup and hope to get something from but you're kind of grasping at straws in this point when you're saying oh milano might you know do a job for us or max jones might come in and help us a little bit or we might have to dip in and and bringing Jacob Perot into the lineup to, to get some offense going, and you know, I'm not trying. We're not trying to make this kind of a downer podcast this time around. But when you you look at some of the, you know the options the Ducks have right now, if you know that number one line, if you want to call it that, with Henrique isn't firing, you know, Comtois is the only guy getting things going right now. They don't have a lot of options to kind of bring in to supplement that scoring, and and that's something we knew going into the season that you know if. Raquel wasn't going to get back to his goal-scoring ways. The Ducks don't have many consistent goal scorers to rely on to bring that offense.
2: Right, and that's the thing, right? It's, you know, you're right. We don't want this to be a downer, but it's hard to watch the game tonight and not go to these as logical thoughts, right? When you're sitting there and you're looking at exactly what, the Ducks lineup is deficient and it's, it's, it's talent. Like I don't, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of the guys who made the league. Like they obviously, you know, they make me look stupid in a pickup game, but I make myself look stupid anyway, so I don't need their help. But you know, I just think it's very easy to see what the team is lacking. And for some teams you see that lack and you go to their prospects pool and you go, okay, I see how we're going to get there in three years. The problem is, is the Ducks don't have that. I mean, at this point, we're looking at Cody Kern, who's like 26, 27, to hopefully come over and be a above-average third-pair defenseman and create a little back-end offense. But, you know, to the extent that, like you said, Milano can't even crack the lineup now, and we're like, well, that could make a huge difference just because he kind of can play hockey at a level offensively that none of the other guys can You know, it's just, it feels like for as much as they get right, there is an institutional failure to commit to being better in four years instead of being mediocre for ten. And we're not even mediocre. We're bad. So, you know, it's not even like that Minnesota thing where it's like, yeah, they can make it. They can not make it. It may depend on the year, but at least... You can see how they're going to get there, short of somebody turning into a Hart Trophy finalist and John Gibson winning the Vezina for four straight years. Like I don't see how this team makes the playoffs in back-to-back years. Not even, you know what I mean? Like I just, mm-hmm. you look at the team and you're like, yeah, it's very clear what they don't have, and that isn't going to be helped by the players in the prospect pool right now. And so you're just left wondering what that means. The saddest
1: thing about that is that I wish Cody Curran was 26, but he's 31.
0: <laughs> so it
1: just it just makes it even worse that we're relying on a 31 year old with no NHL experience to come in and hopefully uh, and hopefully help this blue line. But yeah, I mean, you know, you bring up Minnesota, which is a good point. Minnesota was one of those teams that for a long time fought off the rebuild and said, you know, we committed to Parise and Suter and Miku Koivu and, you know, this is the team we're going with and we're going to either win or burn it to the ground. And eventually they got to the point this year where, you know, enough was enough and you know, Koivu's gone. Uh, obviously you can't really move Suter and Parise. I know they tried to move Parise to the Islanders, I think, at the deadline and it just kind of fell apart and uh, it didn't work yeah. out for them. But there was at least a commitment there in, in an attempt to do that and, you know, to move on from a guy like Miku Koivu. couldn't have been easy for that franchise. But new direction, new captain in Jared Spurgeon. You bring in Marco Rossi. You finally get over Kirill Kaprasov. You've got some young players. Matthew Boldy's a great player, and he's coming for for Minnesota, too. Like, there's a commitment there now that, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. Bob Murray has not been willing to make that commitment and say, okay, you know, we're you know, maybe not burning it to the ground, but this is a rebuild, and we're moving on from some of these guys, and you know, we're we're going to make a commitment to bring in some young talent and and kind of rebuild it here. And you know, it's it's been on and off. You know, yeah, they moved Brandon Montour and they moved Andre Kashia, but were those the guys you should really move at that point in time? You moved out some younger players, some you know mid twenties type guys where. Maybe you keep those guys. You know, uh, how? how d- I know Andre Cash has his, his injury history and whatever. How? How much would we all love to see a player of Andre Cash's skill level playing in this Ducks team right now? Over maybe a guy like Danton Heinen, who you brought in in the Andre Cash deal, right? Like, would I rather see Andre Cash mm. playing with with uh, Ryan Getzlaf, even with his injury problems right now? Probably. You know, obviously the Ducks got other assets in that trade, but the point is, you know, we're. We're making these trades and and some of them kind of signal you're going in one direction and then you sign Kevin Shattenkirk and you bring in Cody Curran and you bring back Derek Grant for three years. You know, They're conflicting moves and it's something we've been talking about for, for the last couple of years with Bob Murray.
0: We'll get to the second
1: half of the recap here after our first break.
0: Hey everyone, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. The best part is you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site will charge you just for the admission setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or having an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join.
2: Yeah, I you know, I think um, you know, the other thing to say is even if it's not that way, it's there's not even been the, the clear commitment to winning now that you see, even to its detriment potentially, with teams like Pittsburgh, who are like, you know what? We're just going to move uh, we're going to move some of these picks, and we're going to bring in players who maybe You know, in a vacuum, they are not worth, you know, from a pure asset management standpoint, what you're going to get out of that pick. But we've got Chris Letang, Evgeny Malkin, and Sidney Crosby right now, and every year that we are not putting our best foot forward with those three, we're wasting them. And that's the thing for me is he hasn't committed to a rebuild. But he hasn't committed to the win now in a way that, like, at least, you know, when it all goes south, you can at least feel better. Be like, you know what? We really took a swing. You know, I mean, David Perron, they got in a trade for Carl Haglin, And other than that, the only first they traded was for Patrick Eaves, And, like, you know, he was fine when he was there. But, like, Patrick Eaves is not going to make or break anybody's team. And so, you know, I just think they screwed themselves by being good enough because of the high end talent to make the playoffs but not so good that they ever made it all the way over that hump and yeah there's a couple of bad breaks and you run into you know a kings team or a, a chicago team but at the same time like if you're putting all your chips into the middle of the table maybe sometimes you catch some of those breaks a little bit better you know and i think that's the thing for me it's almost like he saw what happened from that kessler trade and just bailed And he was just like, I'm never doing that again. And it's like, okay, but that did make the team demonstrably better and had a positive impact on the team. The problem isn't the trade you made. The problem is that you signed that player to a deal that everybody knew was going to be bad two or three years in. And if you win the cup in those first three years, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. But if you don't, now what you're doing is you're, you're just walking around with a hundred pound backpack on, and you're weighing yourself down, and you know they're not getting free agents, but they're also not making trades. So that seven million cap hit, it, it costs you as far as the opportunity cost of what you can do, and so it's just you know again a lot of half in half out. He's not committed to any one direction, and the roster shows that. You've got an old guy in Getzloff who was the leader. You've got a young guy in Zegers who could be the leader and everybody else in between is a middle six guy. You know, the two best players outside of that on the team, if you're asking me, are Lindholm and Manson, or uh, Lindholm and Gibson. Gibson's a clear number one goalie, and Lindholm is definitely a top pair quality, but he doesn't provide the kind of offense that even someone like, you know, uh, a Petrangelo can provide, or a Hedman, or a uh, a Yossi, or anything like that. So, as much as he is a high-end uh, defensive defenseman, he's still not helping you score goals. And so you just have a very poorly constructed roster of good pieces and no picture. You know what I mean? I think I'm kind of screwing this up a little bit. No, no, no. I think you guys get what I mean. No, right? I,
1: I get it. And, and the thing for me is, too, like when you know you have a piece, two pieces, like Zegras and Drysdale... And then you've got, you know, some supplementary pieces like Perot And, you know, you've got Lucas Dostal coming in. Like, you've got some decent pieces there. You know, among those, a few other guys that can make that list that I think are good pieces for the Ducks' future. And then you've got some established guys who are starting to kind of get better in Sam Steele and, and Maxim Comtois. Like, you've got a nice base there. And, and for me, like, that should spark the GM and say, okay, you know, we've got the base here. The team itself as its structure right now is not good. And we don't have time to wait for all of these pieces to either hit or make their way to the NHL. We've got to move some of these guys and, you know, be bad for a little bit and, and bring in some more kind of darts to hit the dartboard and try and hit with. And, you know, if you ask me, like, Henry should have been moved a, a couple seasons ago and Silverberg should have been moved before he signed his new deal. It it just it doesn't make a lot of sense, like, the, the direction you kind of go in there when... You know, you have these kind of good young pieces that are developing. You have these good young prospects coming in, and then you still, you know, I, you know, I don't buy the argument that you need to have an older core. I, I think you can, but I think there's a better way of going about it. And and paying a a guy like Adam Henrique, you know, was a six six year contract, five and a five point five million, and you know, upping Silverberg is not the way to go about it. You know, you look at some other teams and the way they've done that. You look at You know, Ottawa committed to the rebuild. What they did is they brought in Derek Stepan. They paid him, I think, for one year to bring him in. They did that with Anisimov. They did that with Eric Goodbranson. They know they're not going to be good, but they need some of these veteran guys to kind of, you know, fill out a team for one, fill out a roster, but also kind of guide the young guys in if they're not ready to have kind of guys who are NHL players or capable NHL players fill out the rest of the roster. That's what you should do if you're the Ducks. Move on. You should have moved on from Adam Henrique. Move on from Jakob Silverberg. We can debate Ricard Raquel if you want. I think he's still young enough that maybe you keep him around. But fill those spots in the lineup where Henrique and Silverberg would be with expendable guys, one year contracts. Maybe you push it to two year contracts and get assets for those guys. Commit to the rebuild say maybe the same thing for Cam Fowler, maybe the same thing for Josh Manson who are nearing their 30s at this point it, 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 you know Lindholm as well could enter that discussion there has to be a commitment there where you say okay we've got a good kind of base we're building to the right direction but we've got these pieces that we can get assets for and really commit to this and really push to the point of you know being a competitive team and, and you know, getting some good young players and we just don't see that. And I, and I you know, maybe this is the year. We're seeing development from Sam Steele and come to on, We know we have Drysdale and Zegrist on the way and Perot and all these other guys. I would hope that this is the year and, and I don't have any that much optimism in in Bob Murray that he looks at it and says, Okay, this is the year, you know, Adam Hendrick, you gotta go. Silverberg, you gotta go, and then you know, we can make our own judgments and arguments on, on some of the fringe guys that are, you know, Raquel, Lindholm, Fowler, and Manson. Obviously you can't move out an entire team in one season, but I think you've got to at least make two, maybe three of those moves, um, especially when you look at the Ducks over the last you know couple seasons and to, and to start this year. Like you can't really see things getting that much better.
2: Yeah. I So Chris I'm not even going to try to pronounce the handle, but Chris made a point in the chat about how you can't expect first back for Henrik and Sof now. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true. I don't know, especially with uh, that the length of those contracts and the fact that both of those cap hits are over 5 million. I, I don't think you're going to get back a first, but before those contracts were signed, they absolutely could have gotten a first round pick for both of those players and that's where the mistake is because the reason Toronto can go out and I'm going to be a little reductive here but everybody just stay with me the reason that Toronto can go out and sign a 29 year old free agent like uh, John Tavares is because they already have younger guys who have shown that they can compete at, at an elite level and so when you bring in a Tavares he's supplementing that young talent he's giving you a little bit of that veteran leadership and he's a high-end player, and he can make an impact. But what he's also doing is helping you give a little extra support for those young guys, Marner and Nylander and Matthews. And you hope that right as he really starts to fall off, they're in full form. You know, and you're looking at uh, you know a couple guys who can maybe compete for the Art Ross. Uh, Austin Matthews can compete for a Hart. Any three of those guys in a 20 game postseason can, you know, easily end up with Khan's a, a no, uh, uh, um You know, and so I just think that I don't mind so much the idea of bringing in better than average older players to help younger players. The problem is we don't have the younger players that make those kinds of moves make sense.
1: I, I tend to agree that Henrique and Silver may not be worth a first-round pick to most teams, but to somebody, I think, and, and Dalton literally just pipped what I was about to say, mm-hmm. Tampa paid a first-liner for Goodrow because they needed him. Is Barkley Goodrow worth a first-round pick? No. But did his two-year contract at a small cap hit for what, the type of player that Tampa Bay needed? Was that worth a first-round pick? Well, Tampa Bay Stanley Cup champions. Did Barkley Goodrow win them a Stanley Cup? No, but did he contribute to that roster and fill a hole that they needed to fill? Yes. And did Tampa did Tampa think that was worth a first-round pick now that they have Stanley Cup rings? 100% they do. And there's a team yeah. out there that, you know, I know Henry's contract is longer than two years, and, and he makes significantly more than Barkley Goodrow did, but there's a team out there who would be willing <laughs> to pay a, a first-round pick for Adam Henrique, especially if you're taking salary back. To kind of offset the cost there, you know, there will be a team who would be willing to bring in Adam Henrique, a Stanley Cup contending team, as a third line center. Adam Henrique is a great third line center for a Stanley Cup contending team. Jakob Silverberg is a great middle six winger for a Stanley Cup contending team at a pretty decent cost. Ricardo Raquel presents extreme value for any team that is looking to compete and bring in kind of a mystery piece that maybe he rediscovers his form in a change of scenery. The Ducks have plenty of of Mm -hmm. players. That are you know worth a first round pick to somebody out there, and you know you look at Silverberg before he signed his deal. He was having a great season at the deadline. You look at the deadline prices at that time. Silverberg could have fetched you a first plus, and the Ducks opted to keep him, miss the playoffs, and then re-sign him in the off season. Those are the type of moves that you look back on that you're gonna look back on when know, assessing the the way the Ducks have kind of restructured their roster here, and say why why did I not get done? You know, you get a first round pick, and maybe a first and a third, or a first and a prospect for Silverberg for a competitive team back then. And you, know, you, you know, who else do we have in our prospect system at this point in time? I trust the Ducks, um, you know, scouting team to go out there and and at least. You know, swing for the fences with the second first-round pick. We've seen them do that in the last couple of drafts, and you, you got to give them that ammunition when they've done pretty well with what they've had over the last couple of seasons, especially with late first-round picks. You know, we can name a number of, of Ducks uh, players that they've, you know, the, the scouting staff has kind of pipped with those last picks in the first round that have done well. Sam Steele's in the lineup right now. Maxim Comtois was a second-round pick. You know, Getz, Laff, and Perry were were late yeah. first-round picks. Uh, Shay Theodore was a late first-round pick. Like, there's a lot of, you know, for every Shay Theodore and Getzlaff and Perry, there's some guys that didn't pan out. But, you know, the more ammunition you have, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, the better your chances are. And that's the, the approach that a lot of the rebuilding teams have had. And, and you look at the Kings it's probably the prime example across the league right now is just piling up the draft picks. You know, they know, the Kings know that they can't and probably shouldn't trade Doughty and Kopitar. But they traded almost everybody else that they could. You know, you can't really move on from Quick; that contract's too ridiculous. You know, Jeff Carter is making a hefty sum of money, and you can't really move on from him. But the guys they could trade, they did, and they you know piled up the draft picks, and and they've done things the right way. And there's a number of other teams who've kind of done that as well. And we're we're kind of still <laughs> sitting here waiting. And you know, I think I think this could be the year where we see some guys get moved at the deadline. You know, it, it is a tough year for a lot of teams with the expansion draft coming up and uh, a shortened season and, and kind of trying to make things work but you know Ricard Raquel for me is is a guy who's always going to generate interest across the league just because of how you know attractive his contract is and the term that's left on it with you know this year and next year uh, making less than 3.5 million for you know a player of that potential and that quality that's a guy that I, I could see any year anybody being interested in but you you know, maybe this is the year we see a Henrik or a Silverberg or you know a Manson or a Fowler potentially get action and get moved at the deadline.
2: Yeah, and I think um, the other thing that's worth noting is because I, I do think you know because of just the the cultural cachet of first round pick, it's important to note second and third round picks are also valuable. They're obviously not as valuable as the first-round pick, but uh, John Gibson, William Carlson, um, I just pulled it up. So was the second-round pick, like the, there's value <laughs> there. Josh Manson was a sixth-round pick for the Ducks. Like um, there are players that you can find. I mean, I think Pavel Datsuk was like a whatever, right? Like there are always going to be players that when you have good scouting and a lot of luck, you can find these kinds of post-first-round players that can pan out and become impact players. They don't need to all be a heart winner like Kucherov, but even if they are Tyler Johnson or Andre Palat, like you're still coming out ahead. And so if it's first-round pick excuse me. If it's first round pick or bust, you're already setting yourself up to fail because now what you're doing is is you're limiting your ability to maximize the player's value. Because if nothing else, we've always seen, you can package up those picks and move up. And so the more ammunition that you have, the better off you are. I mean Marcus Peterson was a second round pick. Marcus Pedersen would be a great player to have. I'm like, I'm not trying to, like, you know what I mean, like, bring this up that way. I'm saying, like, having Marcus Pedersen on this team right now would be great. And he wasn't a first round pick. And so I think sometimes there can be a a hyper focusing for understandable reasons given of how we know how the draft works on a first round pick. But those second and third round picks can still be incredibly valuable and everything after that, it's a dark boy. But you just need to hit on one of them. You know, if you get one guy who plays 500 games for you in a, you know, who plays 500 games for you once out of every five years in those four through seven rounds, that's a huge win. That's, that's a huge success. And by not giving yourself more and more bites at the apple, you're setting yourself up to fail. And, by not packaging up those picks, the ones that you already have, to bring in players, you're you're really limiting what you can get out of your team, and, and you know the the kind of roster flexibility that comes with being able to make you know more aggressive moves. So, yeah.
1: I I mean I don't remember how many second and third round picks the Kings had last year, but it was a lot, and I know uh, there. Director of scouting came out and said, You know, we tried to get a first round pick, but the price was too high. They tried to get a second one, and it just didn't work out for them. You you look at the draft upcoming this year, the Kings have two seconds, two thirds, and two fourths. They have their own first, and maybe they'll acquire a first if they can, but they know the value of, you know, second and third round picks and fourth round picks and and having, you know, more swings at the fence and and trying to just accumulate as many prospects as you can to try and hit on it. Like, you know, we mentioned some of these guys before, but. You, you look at their lineup right now and, you know, you look at, you know, Arthur Kaliev's a second-round pick and Fagum is a second-round pick and Thomas is a second-round pick. You know, Jordan Spence is a third-round pick. Uh, Simon Tyvel is a, uh, I believe, a second-round pick or a third-round pick and Chromiak's a fourth-round pick and Grands is a second-round pick and is a third-round pick. Like, these are all guys that, you know, a lot of them played Will Juniors. A lot of them are, are considered not necessarily, maybe steals at that point in the draft, but a bargain for where the Kings got them at, and and that's the value of having a good scouting department and those extra picks. Just because guys are always going to fall, and mm-hmm. you know we, we talk about the Hurricanes a lot. You know when you look at this the you know, the draft community and the scouting community, is a team that players always seem to fall to the Hurricanes and and you know the favorites, and they always take them. Well, the Kings are starting to become that team where. You know, mm-hmm. we're, as Ducks fans, we're looking at, okay, we want this guy. This guy's falling in the draft. Okay, we're going to take him in our pick. And then, oh, he gets taken. Well, it's the Kings, you know. Kaliev last year, Chromiak yeah. last year were both falling. Heliger Grans fell to the first round. The Kings snapped him up. Killed Thomas fell, and, and, you know, Ducks fans were hoping that he would fall to the Ducks. And I think the pick before us, the Kings took him in the second round. Like, that's the value of having these and, and yes, the Ducks have done well with their picks. But that just kind of proves my point right there is why not have more more chances to kinda go for these guys. When you look at you know, Chris mentioned Grew was a second round pick, Come Toi was a second round pick, Terry was a fifth round pick. I think like it, it's you know, Mahurra was a third round pick. I know he had injury problems but and, and missed a lot of the season before he was drafted. But you know, these are The the Ducks are doing pretty well with their second, third, fourth, and fifth round picks. This is the chance to go out and get more and and kind of commit to that rebuild and and imagine if they had some more swings at the fences, the prospects they potentially could have in their system at this point on top of what they already have.
2: Yeah, no, that's the thing that's most disappointing about that is that we have seen the Ducks organization be successful with those late round picks. And so I don't understand why they wouldn't take a strength and, you know, leverage that to their advantage. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, Yeah, Brett
1: just said Nugustos was the third. And I know goalies are a bit different in terms of, you know, generally they go in the second and third round anyway, but... Uh, yeah, I mean we could we could talk forever about the the, the ducks you know needing to acquire more picks. Uh, you know uh, that'll definitely be something we cover at the draft. I think you know we're running over an hour here. We we missed fan questions on the last show, so we have to get to some of them on this one. Um, so I'm gonna read off a few we got from the last show, and then we got a bunch from this one. Uh, Caitlin asked from the last show. So she said, "Do we see Zegers later in the season? And if yes, do you do you think we see him for more than nine games?" I'm not sure if this is referring to the normal kind of ten games. Yeah. Where you burn your ELC, um, so we can shorten that down, I guess, to six for the the new rule change. But do you think we see Zigris maybe later in the season rather than earlier? And if he does come, and do you think he kind of gets more than that uh, that minimum game, that minimum six game?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I really do. I uh, unless. He comes up, and he's just clearly not ready and just looks overwhelmed from the jump. I have a hard time thinking he doesn't play 30 games with the team. You know, I think he'll be up sooner than later, and when he does, I think if he's ready, you know, there's no reason to send him back down. Um, And it would be a great bone to throw to Ducks fans to be like, yeah, look at this kid. He's gonna be fucking great for ten years. So you That'd know, be typical Anaheim
1: man. Eh? Bring him up, not for him to make the team better, but to be like, "Hey guys, let's forget about how bad we are and let's
0: look, at, let's look at how how great this kid is."
2: <laughs> yeah, hey man, I'm fine with a shiny object distraction. That's cool. I got ADD, man. Like I'm fine. I'm fine having that used to my benefit for once. You know what I mean, like. I have no problem with them being like, yeah, this kid's going to be really good for a long time, so let's see what happens.
1: Um, next question is on Dallas Eakins. I don't think we've talked about him too much this year. I know we're only two games in, um, but this question was, do you think Dallas is still with the team next season if we see the same results as last year? And as we've seen through the first two games, it, it looks pretty similar to last year. Do you think he is here next year if we see a similar finish to the season?
2: I do, yeah. I I will say that to this point, I haven't seen anything that makes me think Dallas Aikens is the issue. Um, you know, I think he's getting some good things out of some of the players, and some of the players just aren't that good. I, I, you know, I don't know how much. read into any of his decisions given that he kind of clearly seems to be handed a week, you know, a weekend. So, you know, I I imagine Dallas Eakins is going to be the coach at the start of next season, and I would be surprised if he wasn't the coach at the start of the season after that.
1: It's so hard to get a read on on Dallas Eakins because his previous experience, he was handed a a god-awful Edmonton Oilers team and got canned from the job there where, you know, we can't really judge his coaching ability. When you look at that team that he had in Edmonton, it was horrible. And when you look at the team he has in Anaheim, it's, it's not that much better uh, in terms of the talent level they have. Uh, you know, I think we've seen some improvements in some areas, but obviously, you know, special teams have been a nightmare for the Ducks, and, you know, they, they can't score any goals, and, and they hemorrhage a lot of high-danger chances against John Gibson. You know, how much of that is... Dallas Aikens and how much of that is the team in front of him? We would only be able to ever answer that question is if Dallas Aikens was given a better team, and you know compare that with somebody else if they were to coach the Ducks. Like I'm sure if you put you know John Cooper on this team, are the Ducks going to do any better? Probably not. Like they're just you know the roster composition just isn't that great. And, and at some level, I feel for Dallas Akins with the two NHL coaching jobs he's gotten have been mm-hmm. you know with just an awful team in front of him. Um, I think he's here next year. I think that the team, at least for the, the time being, has kind of bought into him and, and said this is going to be the guy who's going to kind of guide us through this transition. I think that could all go out the window when Bob Murray's contract expires at the end of next season and potentially <laughs> a new general manager comes in and that will be their decision at that point in time. And you know maybe they'll give him a, a run out of you know one season under that new GM, whoever that ends up being. And, and we'll see how that goes from there. But, yeah, I, I think you know, as things go next season, um, yeah, I think at least for next season, he's with the team. Yosef um, asked a question. He said, do you think with the Ducks switching to the catchphrase fly together, fly together. and using the Wild Wing jersey, wild that it's a wings signal wings. to a major, a brand, major overhaul. brand overhaul? Or is it just them cashing in on nostalgia?
2: Nostalgia. Yeah, I would say I I think it's just it's just a new hashtag, and they know the team isn't going to be good. So what they're doing is trying to double down on the team aspect of it, right? Like we're going to stick together and we're going to grit it out, and that's how we're going to do it. And we're like, all right, cool. Well, that's going to get us to uh, seven wins in fifty six games. So you know, I don't I don't know that I would read too much into the hashtag changing. Um. You know, this is a pretty conservative organization, and I don't think any major brand, uh, you know, changes are going to come unless either something happens that forces this brand to be unplay, like unusable, uh, or we get a change in ownership. Like, other than that, I, you know, I think we're stuck with this very kind of uh, pseudo blue collar. Ducks brand you know so every time I,
1: I see you know kind of a retro thing come out I you know, first thing that comes to my mind is yeah the Ducks are cashing in on how much everybody loves the Mighty Ducks era like you know I, I why not right I mean you're gonna sell merchandise or You're everybody loves or most people love the Mighty Ducks era and the Mighty Ducks logo and, and kind of the association with that so you know the fly Together hashtag is just that it's a hashtag ties in with the Wild Wing theme they have going on and and you know the tie ins they like to do with with the Mighty Ducks era so yeah I, I I don't think there's anything any brand overhaul coming anytime soon I think the Ducks are happy with the orange and black for now and and sticking with the Web D and, and then kind of tying in the Mighty Ducks logo every time they can um well, let's see we had another question okay this one was a good one because this Talks about Josh Mahura and you know how much I love Josh Mahura. Uh, Victor on Twitter said, "Is Drysdale Mahura a defensive pair we can see in the near future in the organization? In the organization, maybe starting off in San Diego." This just got me excited because yeah, we could actually probably see Mahura and Drysdale in, in San Diego. We might have thought today if the goals uh, preseason game didn't get postponed due to uh, COVID restrictions in the area, that could have been a pairing we saw in San Diego. So. Whether we see it in the near future of the Ducks organization, I think we might be you know, a year or two out from, from seeing a Drysdale-Mahura pairing. But I think it's definitely one we can still see this year just in San Diego.
2: Yeah, I think we might see it in San Diego. Do I think it's realistic that we see it um, at the NHL level at any point? Not really. Um, you know, I have a hard time thinking that they are going to play a slightly undersized offensive defenseman with a not undersized offensive defenseman. Um, You know, I think, if anything, you know, maybe the best version of that is a Thrun and Drysdale, or maybe a Lakeman and Drysdale. But, you know, more realistically for Josh Mahura, like, he's probably looking at playing with Hunter Drew, you know, <laughs> if they both come up, you know, I mean, I just think, from an organizational philosophy standpoint, they do like to have that level of balance on those pairs, you know, I mean, because if that wasn't a thing, why wouldn't they already just play Shattenkirk and Fowler together and yep. just, just go for it, you know what I mean, we have already seen that uh, Lindholm and Manson play incredibly well next to each other. They shut teams down. They're able to be a very solid defensive pair. So if you know you have that to rely on, why not just throw the other two out there and see if just the sheer overwhelming aggressiveness gets you somewhere? You know, I, you know, that, that to me means unless there is a philosophical change in the organization which would require Bob Murray to go, um, you're not you're not gonna see a Mahura Drysdale pair anytime soon.
1: I'm all for that pairing in, in the AHL. I think it would thrive there just the skating ability of the two of them. But at the NHL level I love the idea of Thrun and Drysdale together. I think that is that's more in line with what we you know, what the Dikes the the Ducks like to kinda of put out on the ice in terms of Ooh. kind of a responsible two way defenseman in, in Thrun and, and kind of a more offensive minded puck-moving defenseman in Jamie Drysdale. Um, you know, the, the, the Ducks have some, some good defensive prospects on the way when you look at Maher and, and Thrun and Lacombe and, and Drysdale. And, and Drysdale. you got to, I guess, add Hunter Drew to that list because I know how much you love Hunter Drew. And uh, That's my- if you didn't see it, I put out a prospect update today. And before the show, me and Stephen were talking about a ridiculous Hunter Drew stat that he played <laughs> 20 games in Slovakia when he was on loan and he put up 16 points, which isn't even the most impressive stat about that. He had 111 penalty minutes in 20 games, <laughs> so uh, I think we're all eagerly awaiting. You know, Josh Manson was supposed to be that guy, and we haven't seen that in, in at least a couple seasons of, of that side of Josh Manson's game. Hunter Drew seems like no matter what level he goes to, he goes there expecting violence, and <laughs> he's ready. he's ready to go. I mean, that's unreal. I think we broke it down. Like, if he fought every game while he was over in Slovakia, he would still be 11 penalty minutes short than when he finished with. <laughs> so, we'll uh, we'll wait to see. But, yeah, you know, Drew is definitely uh, an interesting one in the way. Um, That's the man. I love that dude. Man, I I can't I, I can't wait to see him just just to see if his game will translate to the NHL level because he's one of those guys who keeps like, that Mark Borowacki, like Radko Gudis type defenseman that a lot of teams like to have. Where he just is like, yeah. physical but he can kinda of hold his own in, in the other aspects of the game, but he's really there just to like hit guys and fight guys and and, and be that kind of physical, pasty, you know, defenseman that, you know, not every team has, but the more physical minded and, and, and oriented teams have it. I mean Radical goodas keeps finding a home in the NHL for a reason because he fits into a lineup pretty well. I mean he does a job. So and, and Hunter Drew seems like yeah. he could be one of those guys. Um, Question from Joshua. He said, how many points do you think Sam Steele will have by the end of the season? He's got two assists in two games so far. At the end of the 56-game season, how many points do you think Sam Steele has?
2: I will say 45.
1: Four? Ooh, I would love that. Um I will go 15 goals, 30 assists. Oh, we got 56, 38 in the chat. Hockey Boy said 87 because he's going to assist all uh, 87 of Maxim Comtois' goals this year. Uh, man, 45
2: points for Sam Steele would be great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, maybe 35 is a little bit more feasible. But, but I think, you know, just... I got to be honest, man, I'm really impressed, you know, with how much he really seems to have made some kind of adjustment that allows him to be a much more capable player this year. And so I don't think him, be, you know, busting out is, is out of line, especially given that I'm not sure anybody else in the roster is going to do it.
1: Yeah. I, I was so, going to say around 30 to 35, uh, is is maybe more a realistic target, but I agree with you like obviously we 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 talked about it earlier in the show that like the production and the improvement is visible so far across two games mm-hmm. I, I think you know he he has some more confidence and he's bringing that creativity back into his game he can keep that, that up for the entire year and play with, you know, Maxime Comtois and keep that chemistry going for most of the year, then it could be a breakout year not just for him but for Maxim Comtois as well. And if Troy Terry can tag along on that line, I think we'll eventually see some production come from him as well. And, you know, it all comes down to chemistry at the end of the day. When you look at, you know, top producers in the NHL, they all have chemistry on the line that they're playing on. And I think Sam Steele could benefit from that because he's kind of had a rotating – you know, whether it be on the left or the right side, he he really hasn't found chemistry on a, a full line since he's been introduced into the Ducks lineup. If he gets that this year, you know, 45 is, is a lot, especially in 56 games. Um, and, but that would be you know a huge win for the Ducks. You know, this is a guy that after the CHL Player of the Year season he had, where he had like 136 points when he was playing with Regina, yeah. the hype was huge for, for him and it's obviously died off a little bit, um, you know, since he's made the transition through the AHL and the NHL. But, you know, 45 in, in 56 games is a 50- to 60-point season across an 82-game year. You know, that, uh, I think that kind of almost exceeds or hits the ceiling of what we thought, you know, the type of player that Sam Steele could become. That's basically second-line center production. At that point, mm-hmm. And if you think, you know, whether you think Zegers is a, a first-line center or not, or a center at the NHL level, Sam Steele producing at that level instead of maybe a third-line center, 30 to 40 point, what we have in Henrik now is a, a major, major win for the Ducks and when you look at their long-term future and, and maybe not needing, you know, a guy like Benoit Gru, or Isaac Lunderstrom to try and hit that level if you, if you can get Sam Steele, you know, to be your bona fide second-line center for the future.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, if Sam Steele turns into a guy who's getting between 45 and 55 points pretty regularly, um, I think that's just an absolute win, you know, because he has shown that at least mentally he understands, you know, NHL-level defense. You know, he's got a lot to learn, um, obviously, but... I have, I'm not worried about him being able to play defense at the NHL level. My concerns with him are how much offense is he actually going to be able to contribute. And if he can turn into, right, like you said, right around a 50-point guy, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And puts um, the Ducks in a much better spot going forward than they appear to be in right now. All right. Last question.
1: Not, I guess not really Ducks related, but I thought it was an interesting one because we've, had some focus on the draft over the last couple of years. it has got six players here. Rank them. If you had to draft them from one to six, what's your order? So the players are Trevor Zegres, Kirby Doc, Marco Rossi, Cole Perfetti, Tim Stutzel, and Alex Turcotte. From one to six, who is, we'll start from the bottom. Who's your six up to number one mm-hmm. from that list? I
2: might have to put Turkot
1: at six. Turkot's my six too, and and just because of the the offensive upside for the rest of the guys, I I think Alex Turkot yeah. going to be a great player, but um, the dy- dy- dynamic offensive skill sets for the rest of those five guys, you just you can't pass up on it. Yeah. For me, for me, uh, we'll go one to five because otherwise we could probably talk about this all night. For me, my one to five are probably Kirby Doc, Tim Stutzel, Zegras, Rossi, Perfetti, turcott
2: Yeah, I think, uh... Dak is definitely, I think, my one. I think, um... You know, I think I would I would say it this way. I think Dak, Zegers, and Stutzlow would be my top three. Yeah. And I think Rossi, Perfetti, and Turcott would be my bottom there, three.
1: There's just a separation I'm, there, I think, of those yeah. two sets of three.
2: Yeah, you know, I, uh, I'm really high on Dak. Uh, he's got, um, you know, good playmaking ability and stuff, but he's also got good size, and I'm just a sucker for that shit, man. <laughs> He was um, you know, touted which as is, the
1: next Getzlaf at the draft, he yeah, I mean, still yeah. kind of is,
2: right? So, yeah, he's got that ability. You know, he's got that the skill level to really be able to use his frame in a, a productive manner in a, a really successful way. So, you know, I think for me, that's why he's so high up there. I think Stutzler just has incredible skill. Um, him and Zegris, I think you could maybe talk yourself into going any order, but I do think Stutzler seems to be more willing to shoot at this point, which, you know, just raises his floor a little bit higher.
1: Yeah, it's close. I think for those two, it's close. Doc, just because of the progression and the fact that out of all of them, he's the only guy who's played a full season in the NHL at this point, he kind of takes the cake as the number one guy. Um, and Marco Rossi just kind of misses out on that on that top three just because the, the, the I, I hate the size argument in the NHL, but for Marco Rossi at basically 5'8, 5'9, it still is an yeah. issue, especially if, if he's going to be a center. Um, all right. I'm, absolute I, I think that pretty much wraps up the show. Um, we've got, what's the next game? Minnesota on, is it Monday? I think it's Monday. I think Monday. Yeah. Minnesota Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be live after that game. We're live after pretty much every every um, every game this year with the post game show, except for back to backs. We're live at the second game of the back to back for for those sets. I can't wait till the five game stretch where we play the Kings to do those post game shows because that's just, <laughs> that's going to be a wild I, series.
2: I have talked about it two separate times today. I am so excited for it it is going to be an absolute blast. So that, that'll that be a good time. That definitely is something to look forward to. I think the
1: broadcast said um, yeah, earlier today it's the first time that a team will play another team five times in a row in any season, which I guess makes sense because, you know, because you're, you're in a regular season schedule. You're never going to play one team five times in a row. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's just going to be wild. It just adds to it that it's, you know, one of the best rivalries in the NHL, and Ducks and Kings hate each other, and a lot of the, you know, the players from one that rivalry really was at its heyday, you know, four or five years ago are still there, and Doughty and Kopitar and Carter and Dustin Brown, and obviously Getzlaff, you know, Fowler and Lindholm are still there, John Gibson, so, yeah, it's going to be wild. I'm getting told I got we got to answer this last question before we move on. Um and that I asked, will Bob Murray be here next year? I say yes, because he has one more year left on his contract, and that's it. There's no point in literally firing him um,
2: with the one year left. I am going to hedge a little bit, and I will say that he is, but I don't think he's the GM. I think he's going to get the dreaded promotion.
1: The dreaded Randy Carlisle promotion. Did Randy Carlyle ever get that promotion? Is he in the organization?
2: I think he still he still might technically be the organization, but honestly, I was thinking more of like uh, Dale Talon, uh, yeah, head or of hockey Ken up, type thing. Yeah, where they're just like, yeah, thanks, and then you know they bring in somebody under him to be like VP of hockey operations or whatever, and you know they're the ones who run the day to day hockey stuff. Um, I I I think that there's only so many times that Bob Murray's going to be able to go to the Samuelis and say, no, 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 but next season they're going to take a jump. And I just, you know. He only gave that would, one more
1: time, and that's next year. So <laughs>
2: I can't see him getting you know another what,
1: extension after this.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely don't. Unless, you know, like I said, they give him, you know, an extra year and a pay increase as just like a, uh, you know, basically like a de facto pension and just be like, look, thanks for everything you did. You, you did a great job, but it, we just need to move on. So I will say that he is, but I don't think he's in charge.
1: I think, you know, not that I hate Bob Murray, and obviously the last couple of years have, have kind of made it difficult to root for him, but I think for this franchise and for fans of this franchise, a new direction, a fresh face is exactly what this team in and, and this organization needs you know, a different direction, a new philosophy, a new approach to siding drafting you know acquiring players. we've we've had the same thing for so long and obviously there was a, you know a high level of success for you know a long period of time for the ducks and then now we're kind of getting into that lower end of the period that every team goes through of up and ups and downs of you know being a highly competitive team and now kind of having to rebuild and get back to that point. Um, you know those kind of lows are always accompanied by either you know a coaching change, a change in general manager, or both. And you know we got the coaching change, and and I think we're slowly, slowly moving towards that kind of final piece of the puzzle of bringing in another another general manager. And whether that you know successor to Bob Murray is a guy who sticks around for ten years or not, you know that remains to be seen. It depends on who comes in and and you know what. What point in in the transition period the ducks are in, but even if that guy comes in and lasts, you know, two or three years, it's still just that fresh feeling around the organization of having kind of a a different different guy running running the franchise, a new direction, and everything like that.
2: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I think you know, uh, to my own personal benefit for many years. And to my uh, absolute chagrin, the last couple, Bob Murray has been a very steady presence. He has basically just tried to continue to do uh, roughly what Brian Burke did without, you know, the exciting trade thing. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I do think that we will get to a point as Ducks fans where we look back and we do appreciate how consistent and steady a presence he was. But I do think it's at the point where we are going to need a fresh perspective on this roster because Bob Murray's been with the team as long as Getzy has. You know what I mean? So, like, I just don't know that he's going to be able um, to kind of find that that separation um, and be able to make the kinds of – moves and changes that need to happen over the next couple of years if Anaheim wants to get back to being a high-level competitor.
1: All right, that wraps up the show for today. Uh, as I mentioned, Minnesota on Monday, Minnesota on Wednesday, Colorado on Friday, Colorado on Sunday will be live for all four of those games. Ducks finish out the month of January with uh, two games against Arizona, two games against St. Louis. Will be live for both the Arizona games and for the second of the back-to-back against St. Louis. A tough schedule up ahead, but I mean this is what's to be expected in in kind of the shortened season and the way the division is set up for the Ducks this year. Uh, Minnesota should present an interesting test, as we mentioned before. Back-to-back comeback wins against the Kings. They're right around that bubble of where we think the Ducks could finish in terms of fighting for kind of fourth or fifth this year in the division and maybe squeaking in for that last playoff spot. So this will be kind of a real test for the Ducks to see how they stack up against the team that's probably going to be the one that they're fighting with if they want to make the playoffs and if they can push in front of teams like Arizona, uh, LA and San Jose. So we'll be live with that show. um, Always 15 to 20 minutes after the game. And, uh, Take care, guys. We appreciate you guys coming out and looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody.